Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana, and also our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. And we are coming down, as I said, down the home stretch of the book and the life of Nehemiah next Sunday, as I just mentioned. We're going to finish that up at the 1111 uh, uh, service. Uh, we'll be finishing up that series, Nehemiah, Fulfilling Your Part in God's Story. And today we're talking about maintaining a spiritual center, maintaining a spiritual center, having Christ at the center of your life. John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Jesus used the illustration of a vine and we're the branches. And here's a picture of the largest and the oldest grapevine in the world. It was planted in 1768. This year, it was 250 years old. A quarter of a millennia, two and a half centuries old. Uh, It has one root, which is at least two feet thick and growing all the time, and some of the branches are 200 feet long. Now, here's the line that I love. Despite its age, the vine produces several tons of grapes every year. Despite its age, it still produces several tons of grapes each year. Now, that's my prayer for my life. And for any of us that are older, and I'm not going to define what older means, you can, that's between you and God, what you determine is older. But I want that said about me. Uh, despite his age, he's still producing several tons of fruit every year. And you know what it also reminds me of? Reminds me of our church. 148 years old. In two years, we're going to be 150 years. And, and I love it to be said about Purpose Church, how rare it is for a church after 148 years to still be pumping for Jesus. I'd love for that to be said about our church. Despite its age, it's still producing several tons of fruit every year. Anybody want to say amen to that? And, and it's just, it's such a, a, a rare thing. Think of how many times we've had to rekindle our first love. How many times we've had to put Christ in the center once again. How many times we've had to make sure we're connected to the vine because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I, church plants are exciting. Our church has been very successful in church planting. We've probably planted 20 or 25 churches. Several of those are mega church in size and just growing, thriving churches. I love church plants and new churches. But I tell you something that I find equally exciting, if not more than exciting, you've heard me say this many times, is a church that's 148 years old, a vine that is still 148 years old and is still producing tons of fruit every year. That gets me really charged up. Anybody want to say amen to that? My goodness. And tonight, this meeting is part of that whole strategy as to how we uh, continue to make that happen. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now let me ask you a question just as we get started, because this is the first step in what we're talking about. Do you know that you're connected to the vine? Do you know that you've made Christ the Lord of your life? Do you know that you've opened up your heart and received him? Do you know that you have sought first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then the other things in life will fall into place as well? And if you're not sure of that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would everybody here, and just even though you've done this many times before, you can just put it back when you're done, would everybody reach uh, in front of them in the book rack uh, to the resource card that says how to become a follower of Jesus? 
And I just want to walk you through this. And I encourage you, take this home with you and have it accessible so that if you're sharing over coffee with a friend or you're talking to somebody uh, someday, you can just grab a hold of this and walk through the same steps that I'm doing right now. A, B, C. A, admit your condition before God. For all have sinned and fall short of his perfect standards. There's imperfect us on one side and there's a chasm because of our sins to a perfect God on the other side. B, number two. Believe that Jesus is God's only solution to that condition. For the wages, the result of our sin, our wrongdoing, the things I think and say and do that I shouldn't think and say and do, or the people I should have loved that I have not loved as I should, the result of that is spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then there's an action step. Number three, choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. He made a bridge through by dying on the cross for us. He made a bridge between us and God. But we've got to walk on that bridge. And so Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. When you connect with the vine, when you as a branch of your life connect with the vine, you have crossed over from death to life. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you have crossed over uh, from death to life. And if you've never done that, Or if you're not sure if you've done that, I want to give you the chance to do that right now. Would you pray silently? And if you're watching online or in Kalispell or in Arco, if if you're watching this right now, would you pray silently as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, What I want you to do is after the service, just go out to the fountain and there'll be some pastors out there that would just love to share with you about what maybe the next step is uh, to following Jesus. Or maybe you've never taken the public step to follow him in baptism. And you could be number 24 this weekend, or number 25, or number 26. You could just talk to one of the pastors out there. You say, Glenn, I didn't bring any clothes. Well, first of all, everybody in the Bible went home wet. Nobody had changing rooms and hair dryers back then. I don't know how I could have gotten baptized without a hair dryer. I'm not sure how I could have made that happen. None of that back then. Everybody in the Bible went home wet. But you don't have to go home wet because we've got a change of clothes and towels. We've got it all there for you. And if you would like today, you've never taken that step. You saw the two people follow Jesus in baptism. You say, you know what? I've put that off. I have never done it. You're not here by accident this morning. God is divinely appointed you right here, right now. He invited you here to hear this invitation. And I encourage you just to go out to the fountain and talk to one of the pastors uh, there after the service is over. Now, for the remainder of our time, we're going to talk about how to keep God first in our lives. And we're going to see it illustrated uh, through this part of the book of Nehemiah that we're studying here today. Now, to do a little bit of a review, they finished building the walls of Jerusalem. And now they're going to dedicate the walls, and they're going to rededicate themselves to having God at the center of their lives. And they're going to do it six different ways. Number one is to pay attention to the Bible. We're going to meet somebody new today, Ezra the high priest. Nehemiah was the political leader, the governor of the nation of Israel. Ezra was the high priest. And we pick it up with chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. 
All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law, that is the Bible, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. The children were there to the age that they could understand. If they could understand what was going on, the children were there. And fifth graders and above, that's why we want you here tonight. Because you, this is your church family. Uh, you, you're, you're part of us. We're part of you. You're our future. And so we'd love to have you there. Just because they believe that they should have everybody there. They were able to understand when they made these commitments to God. Uh, verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. Six hours they stood and listened to God's word being read. Now the reason why they were able to do that with such enthusiasm is they hadn't heard God's word or read it for 70 years. For so, I mean, we take it so for granted. The Bible is so accessible to us. But if we didn't have it for 70 years, uh, think what that would be like. After 70 years, they finally get to hear God's word. And so they stood from daybreak until noon. For six hours, they stood and listened to God's word. Uh, two ladies were walking out of church one Sunday. One said, my, that preacher certainly preaches for a long time. Her friend replied, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like a long time. And you, and you know what those sermons are like, don't you? Maybe you're in the middle of one right now. It just, it, just seems, it just seems like a long time. Well, it didn't seem like a long time. It seemed like nothing because they were so hungry. They hadn't heard God's word for 70 years. Uh, daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and all others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform. They built, built for the occasion. They built this high wooden platform so that he could stand above him so everybody could see him and hear him as he was reading God's word. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanan, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Now look, any of you parents that are looking for unique names for your children, I know. It's like parents always want something that will have them stand out at school. This will do the trick, okay? Aren't you glad you came to church? Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Now, maybe you're not a hand lifter in, in worship. And, and it's nothing legalistic about it. Don't have to do it. But I encourage you sometime during worship, just give it a little try. Just down here, just give it a little like this, you know. And, and then maybe a month later, go here. And, then a month later. And, and, and I'm just saying, it might freshen up your worship a little bit. I'm just saying to try. Nothing legalistic about it. Don't have to do it. One of many positions the Bible says you can worship God in. But give, but give it a try because it's biblical. It's biblical. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down. Another way to worship. And worship the Lord God with their faces to the ground. Verse 7. The Levites, and there's another set of children's names for you to consider, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being said. It's almost like Ezra was the preacher, 
And then they break into Sunday school classes or small groups or Bible study groups. And then the Levites, the, the Sunday school adult Sunday school teachers, you're in a class or in a small group or in a Bible study, then they helped to kind of have Q&A and answer questions and, and give them the meaning so that the people could understand better uh, what, was, what was being read. And what an absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing day um, that that was. Now, I want to ask you three questions. Uh, first of all, when the Bible is taught, how well do I listen? And it's hard work to listen. It's hard work to listen to each other in conversation, and it's hard work um, to listen to God when His Word is preached or when you hear the Bible or when you read the Bible. An old man thinks his wife is losing her hearing. He calls the doctor about it, and the doctor says he can do a little experiment to determine the severity. Ask her a question from the next room in a normal tone of voice and keep asking while coming closer until she can hear you. That way you'll know the range of her hearing. That night he sits on his easy chair about 30 feet from his wife while she cooks dinner in the kitchen. In a normal tone of voice he says, what's for dinner? She doesn't respond. So he gets up and walks to the kitchen doorway about 20 feet away and asks, what's for dinner? She still doesn't respond. So he walks 10 feet closer and asks, what's for dinner? She still doesn't say anything. So he gets right up beside her and asks, what's for dinner? His wife turns to him in a rage and screams, chicken, chicken, for the fourth time we're having chicken. Now sometimes we think the other person's not listening. And sometimes we're, we're, we're that person. It's not natural to listen. It, it, it takes hard work. I, I came across something that was so convicting because I have a real problem with jumping in when people are talking. Now, Kimberly, don't say amen to that on the front row. It'll just embarrass me in front of everybody. But I, I really struggle with this. And uh, here's what it said. Conversation is a vocal competition in which the one who is catching his breath is called the listener. Isn't that true so many times? Conversation is a vocal competition in which the one who is catching his breath is called the listener. And man, it, it, it's hard work to listen to each other. And, and it's hard work to listen to God. But we should do the work. It's important. We have a responsibility to do it. Whenever we hear God's word preached, and I tell you, I've, I've heard boring sermons and I've preached boring sermons. And, 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 but, and, and I don't, don't want to take myself off the hook or pastors off the hook or Bible teachers off the hook. We have a responsibility to make God's word as engaging as we possibly can. I think there's, there's few sins worse than making God's word boring because it is anything but boring. And so forgive me when, if I ever make it, ever make it boring. Uh, we have a responsibility, but I'm telling you, the listener has a responsibility. And whenever I am sitting in a message, and before the sermon begins, I'll just pray something like this. Lord, show me just one thing you want to say to me through this Sunday school lesson or through this Bible study or through a preacher on the radio or, or through a, in preaching on Sunday morning. God, what's one thing you want to say to me? And you know what? Even if the, the preacher is boring as all get out, God always shows up and answers that prayer. Always get something out of it. When you, when you go with an open heart and just say, Lord, just show me one thing. And, and sometimes it's more pleasurable to get that thing because it's an interesting sermon. And sometimes it's not so pleasurable because it's a more boring sermon. But God will always show up and say something to you that you need within your life. Second question, do I read the Bible for myself? 
Uh, Do you have a plan for daily Bible reading? Do you have a time and a place for daily Bible reading? The method we promote here at Purpose Church is called the SOAP method. S-O-A-P. First you read the scripture. Then you simply observe, okay, what's going on here? Then you apply it to your life. Okay, how does this apply to my life? Then you pray about it. And if you would like teaching on the SOAP method, a bunch of us pastors are online at purposechurch.com slash SOAP. And several of us pastors are on there, and we're explaining and we're teaching the SOAP method more in depth. And so you just simply take a chapter of the Bible every day. And you just apply S-O-A-P to it. Do I read the Bible for myself? It is the one thing that will cause the greatest spiritual growth and change in your life. One of our five core values as a church is that growing people change. And the number one thing you can do to grow in your Christian walk, the number one thing you can do is to change over time, is to have daily time when you study and you read God's Word. And then the third question, what do I trust most to direct my life? Is it Dr. Phil, or is it a friend at work, or is it a friend at school, or maybe it's a majority of what all Americans believe? What, what is the thing that you trust the most, or is it, is it God's Word? Is God's Word the thing you trust the most uh, to direct your life? It's the, it's the one thing that's solid compared to all the others. One night, a ship's captain saw what looked like the lights of another ship heading toward him. He radioed, change your course 10 degrees north. The reply came back, change your course 10 degrees south. The ship's captain answered, I am a captain. Change your course north. The reply came back, I'm a seaman first class. Change your course south. This infuriated the ship's captain. So he radioed, I say change your course north. I'm on a battleship. To which the reply came back, I say, change your course south, I am in a lighthouse. (laughs) Now, God's word is that lighthouse. It's a lighthouse on a rocky outcrop, on, on solid ground. It ain't moving. Culture moves and changes. Um... Uh, our, our, our culture, uh, times change, culture changes. The Word of God never changes. The wisdom that you find in this book, the truth is eternal. And so we don't say, move the ship according to my whims. Instead, we say, I'm going to move my ship according to the lighthouse. It is unmovable, unchangeable, and it will stay solid, and I can base my life on it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. The the number one thing to do is say, God, you're smarter than me. And that means this book is wiser than me. And I'm going to base my life on it rather than watering it down to base and, and to fit into my life. And then number two, enjoy your relationship with God. Look at verses 9 through 12. We pick up the story. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now listen, if you haven't heard God's word for 70 years, and you hear it for the first time after 70 years, I'm telling you, there's probably some things you missed doing over the last 70 years. There are probably some things where you haven't obeyed, where I haven't obeyed God's word, if I haven't heard it for 70 years. And so they were like listening to God's word read, and they're like, oh my goodness, we are toast. 
We are, we failed so many ways. God told us to do these things and we've neglected them for, for 70 years for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the, the words of the law. What do they say? Nehemiah said, no, no, put your mourning aside. Enjoy your relationship with God. Enjoy your relationship with God. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Choice food in the original Hebrew literally means eat the fat. Don't cut the fat away from the steak. Eat the fat. You know, I prayed, and I think this is the one thing God wants me to carry away from this message here today. (laughs) Eat the fat. Kimberly, did you hear that? God told me to eat the fat. He said, eat the fat. That's the takeaway from today. Go out to lunch afterwards and eat the fat. Don't drink the unsweetened drinks, okay? That bitter-tasting, non-caloric stuff. Drink the sweet drinks. Eat the fat, drink the sweet drinks. He says, look, man, the Christian life is to be enjoyed. Enjoy your relationship with God. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. There was a justice component in this. Hey, always think of people that don't have as much of you. Uh, all the time, but especially on holidays like this. Send them something that don't have enough to eat. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, don't grieve. And then verse 12, then all the people went away to eat the fat and drink sweet drinks. To send portions of food And to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. When you finally understand God's word and then you begin to apply it to your life and then the blessings begin to flow, it is a time to rejoice. Eat the fat. Go to Marie Callender's. Order the chicken pot pie, which is 2,000 calories. I'm serious. Did you know that bad boy is 2,000 calories? Eat the fat. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. I just found a new life verse. <laughs> Got to put it up on my desk. Okay. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Uh, Greg Laurie writes about Frederick Nietzsche, who started the whole God is dead movement. Fred, Frederick Nietzsche once told some Christians, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a lot more redeemed. And, and Greg Laurie asked the question, do you look redeemed? This doesn't mean that Christians must walk around with permanent smiles. You know, he's like, you know that's, that's weird, okay? That's weird. <laughs> You know, I run into that problem all the time because I go into my pastor mode. Ask Kimberly. I wave to every car that ever drives by us. People think I'm the insane guy on the block. Everybody goes, just, just so I don't offend anybody that drives by and I, I, I wasn't. I, it doesn't mean have the crazy pastor smile on. Sometimes I'll greet visitors overly enthusiastically before the service begins and they're like, who is this? And then as soon as I get up to preach, they're like, oh, oh, I get it now, I get it now. But it doesn't mean Christians walk around with permanent smiles, but it is a powerful testimony when Christians can rejoice, even in the midst of adversity. Joy is a magnet God has given to believers. 
And so we're to enjoy our relationship uh, with God. Now, number three, confess your sins and be specific. 24 days later, now this is now a part two of this dedication ceremony. 24 days later, we pick it up with chapter nine. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. You know, I always ask God to give me something from his word before I preach it. Lord, Lord, what is the thing you want me? And I, I'll tell you, this was, this was my big takeaway. I was very convicted by this. Confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. I will confess to you that sometimes it's a temptation to say, I understand I've got to confess my own sins and maybe even the sins of our generation. But why do I have to confess the sins of past generations, of my ancestors? I wasn't around there. I didn't do those things. And, and so they might have thought the same thing. You know, there were certain sins of their ancestors that caused God to bring the Babylonians and destroy the walls and destroy the city of Jerusalem. But none of them were there. And so why do I have to confess those sins? You know, why do I, why do I have to confess uh, the sin of slavery that our country supported for so many years? Why do I have to uh, confess the sin of the treatment of Native Americans in, in our nation's past. Well, I, you know, I wasn't here. You know why I do it? Because it's biblical. It says, confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And I spent some time this week going before God and confessing not only my sins or the sins of our generation, but confessing the sins of our ancestors. And then comes verse 3. It says, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Now they're down to three hours of standing. But then another three hours, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Six-hour worship service. This time it wasn't all scripture. This time it was half scripture and the other half was worship and, and confession. And this leads, if you want to read it later today, it leads to the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. As soon as, you start, as soon as I start confessing my sins and the sins of my ancestors, I'm going to be there for a long time. And the longest recorded uh, prayer in the Bible follows this prayer. Acts 3.19, Peter says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Then number four, make yourself spiritually accountable. It says in chapter 10, verse 29, that they, they held each other accountable. All those now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves, hold each other accountable with a curse. That is, there's going to be consequences. We're going to hold each other accountable, and there will be consequences if we don't do these things. And an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of, of the Lord our God. And so they said, look, let's, let's hold each other accountable. And there were three major things that they were making a commitment. Number one was that their children not marry unbelievers. Number two was that they honor the Lord's day, as you're doing right now. And number three, that they give of their tithes and, and offerings. And, and change happens through accountability. I, I always love to say that I don't usually change when I see the light. I change when I feel the heat. I wish I was a smart enough guy that I just read something in the Bible and say, I need to change that, and I change it. And sometimes I am, okay? Do I have to learn everything the hard way? But much of the time, I don't change when I see the light. I change when I feel the heat. And part of that heat is accountability to each other, where we hold each other accountable. Uh, Rachel Kovac was in the newspaper in the Houston Chronicle, 
After being ticketed twice for speeding, the parents of this 17-year-old from St. Joseph, Missouri, got a bumper sticker for her car that said, if I am speeding, call my parents. Then it listed her parents' phone number. And the article ended this way, Rachel no longer speeds. Rachel no longer speeds. And it's accountability that, that keeps us uh, from doing what we ought not to do or what we have committed ourselves to do. Chuck Swindoll writes, like everyone else, I have blind spots. By being accountable, I will gain insight I don't have in myself. This is so powerful. The kind of world I live in has too many booby traps and subtle snares for me to handle on my own. Anybody want to say amen to that? kind of world we live in has too many booby traps and subtle snares for me to handle on my own, especially when I travel or when I'm alone. I need additional strength. And that additional strength comes from, from mutual accountability. Make yourself spiritually accountable. Uh, find somebody in your life that you say, you know what, hold me accountable. Somebody in your life group, in your small group, find somebody in that group or that whole, the group as a whole Somebody that you can tell the truth to and that knows the truth about you and knows what you're struggling about and says, hey, hold me accountable in this thing. And then number five, give your best to God in worship. And this is so awesome in Nehemiah 12, verse 27. Look at, look at all the organization of, of their worship. And, and, you know, we as the church, we take this very seriously. I, I know sometimes it looks like we're just kind of making it up as we go along. But we prepare and we have meeting after meeting where we hone and prepare what, how we're going to worship together. And it took that for them uh, in this dedication. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Uh, verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs. So they had two choirs, just like we had the student choir here today. And then we earlier had the, the adult choir. And we had the, they had these two choirs going on uh, that had organized this whole thing. I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right. Student choir will make you walk on the wall, all right, instead of the, uh, down on the ground. Uh, next verse, uh, verse 38, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Then verse 40, the two choirs. I mean, this must have been beautiful. These whole choreographed moving choirs, the two choirs that gave thanks, then took their places in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials. And then verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. The sound of the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be hard far away. I've gotten such a kick out of, it's been so fun with uh, Mexico is undefeated in the World Cup. Anybody want to hear it from Mexico? Undefeated in the World Cup. And I tell you, I'm out running. I'm out running and just complete strangers just come up to me and talk, talk, talking about the World Cup. Did you see it? And, you know, just, I'll, I'll just be out, just complete strangers coming up so excited. And, and I love this. This is a true story. This is not made up. I got this off the internet. This thing is true. Okay. <laughs> But I, I do think it's a true story. It's a legitimate article. True story. That Do you know when Mexico scored the winning goal against Germany, the defending World Cup champion, last week? 
Do you know that seismologists who study earthquakes, it registered with seismologists all across the country of Mexico with millions of people jumping up and down and screaming, it registered as an earthquake. Is that awesome? And you know what I think? I think every Sunday morning around the world, we should be producing an earthquake. I think seismologists should know what we're doing. I know it got a little crazy up here with the worship team and all the things they brought back from Nairobi, and it was a little wacky, but that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a little wacky, a little crazy. We, we, we ought to be worshiping like we, we just won the World Cup game against, against the defending champion, baby. And so it says, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And then number six, take regular spiritual checkups. Now, Nehemiah goes back to Susa, which is the head of the Persian Empire, what is today the nation of Iran. And we don't know how long he was gone. He was gone for a while, and he comes back to check up on how the people were doing in their commitments. And they had broken all three of them. By the time he left, he comes back, checks up. They've messed up on all three. Look at his response, Nehemiah 13. This is awesome. This is one of the great verses in the Bible, along with eat the fat. This is another good one. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Ezra, in the earlier book, when he got upset, it says he pulled his own hair out. And that's the two ways, by the way, psychologically, that people handle anger. Some turn it on themselves and pull their own hair out. That's why I look the way I look. <laughs> other people pull other people's hair out. Ezra was one type of guy. Nehemiah was the other. I beat some of the men, pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Now, this is not a racist thing. Uh, the, the problem was not that they were foreign. I mean, in, in Jesus' genealogy, we have people that are non-Jewish. We have Rahab. She was a follower of God, but she was non-Jewish. Ruth, follower of God, but non-Jewish. It, it's not a racist, racial thing going on here. What's going on is that they were, they were loving other gods. They came to Solomon, and, and, and when they married him, they brought their idols with them. And it even says they set up the idols side by side with the worship of God. And so he says that the problem was you should marry somebody that is equally on fire for Jesus as you do. And student choir, I can't resist. Just turn it to you for a second. Marry somebody who loves Jesus as much as you do. It'll bring the blessings down. I, I can say it for myself. She's sitting on the front row right now. Marry people that are equally on fire um, uh, to Jesus. And, and so, so he was saying, if it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to you and can happen to me. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to you. And so we need to take regular spiritual checkups. As the praise team and the student choir comes back up right now, I just want to introduce the, the, the closing song that we're going to sing. And, uh, you know, this song has been my go-to song for the last year. You ever have a Christian song that does that for you? It gets you through a year. 
And, 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 and well, a year ago, we were at the Catalyst Conference, uh, which is a pastor's conference uh, down in Irvine. And the Elevation Choir was there. They're, they're an Elevation worship out of a church in North Carolina. And I bought their CD when I was there. And I've listened to this in my office probably about a hundred times. Probably once every couple of days, I'll listen to the whole thing. And its feature song is a song said, God, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And I began that prayer a year ago. Lord, we're, we're 140, well, back then, 147-year-old church. I said, Lord, I'm 61. Are, are the best days behind? And that's okay if you just want me to be faithful. If you just want our church to be faithful until we go home or until Jesus comes back, that's fine. But God, if there's anything fresh you want to do here, oh God, do it again. If there's anything we want to do in this old guy's life, in our 148-year-old church, God, God, do it again. Do it again. In the midst of that, we get a call from the biggest seminary in the world, training more Christian leaders around the globe than anybody else in world history. And they tell us they want to park across the street from us. And I thought of this song. Oh God, do it again. Tonight, that's what we're going to be praying. God, do it again and again and again until Jesus returns. Let's stand up. Let's sing it together.